Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. The world needs real men real bad, and there are all sorts of conflicting ideas and messages about what a real man is and is not. Is a real man one who hunts, loves sports, grills meat, fixes cars, and climbs mountains? Well, sure, sometimes, but that's not really the point of being a man, and it's not the purpose for which men were made. Into our cultural confusion, Brant Hansen paints a refreshingly specific, compelling picture of what men are made to be, keepers of the garden, protectors, and defenders. He calls for men of all interests and backgrounds, including avid indoorsmen like himself, to be ambitious about the right things and to see themselves as defenders of the vulnerable with whatever resources they have. Using short chapters loaded with must-have wisdom and his signature humor, The Men We Need explains the essence of masculinity in a fresh, thoughtful, and entertaining way that will inspire any man who dares to read it. Brand Hansen is an author, radio host, and advocate for healing children with correctable disabilities through Cure International, which I'm going to ask him a little bit about uh, later on in the podcast. He's won multiple awards for Personality of the Year for his radio show, which airs on more than 200 stations nationwide. His podcast with his friend and radio producer, The Brant and Sherry Oddcast, has been downloaded, get this, more than 10 million times. And he's the author of several books, including The Truth About Us, Unoffendable, and Blessed Are the Misfits. But today, he's with me to talk about the men we need. Brant Hansen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I can't wait to use my signature humor on your podcast. <laughs> my, well, here's my first question is, where do you get the nerve to write about the men we need, man? <laughs> I know. Uh, well, you know, it is a crisis. And like, yeah. I, there's so much deconstruction, and it's a lot of that's really good. Mm-hmm. A lot of the deconstruction is good. But like, what's the construction? <laughs> there you go. It's all tearing yeah. down. No, yeah. yeah. In, the, in deconstruction, I think is is much easier. It's just just like anything else. It's easier <laughs> to knock something over and and critique it than it is to build something that's beautiful and good. Yeah. And I think because I'm not like I'm not the guy to come out with a man book, almost makes it uh <laughs> makes it better. Well, I tell you, there are photos I've seen of you, brother. Um, I don't know if they're promo photos or what have you, but you've got a John Stamos thing going. So if you just went on your on the kind of still image, but then you start talking and you're like, oh, this guy's a little more relatable. Yeah, I, I am Jack too, and I and I can't. There's nothing I can do about that. <laughs> okay. The, the subtitle the subtitle for the book is uh, God's Purpose for the Manly Man, the Avid Endorsman, or any man willing to show up. What do you see? Give us a state of the problem. What is the problem with masculinity or the way, I guess, even the church, not just the world, but the church sees manhood? What's the problem? And what's the problem with how we typically talk about manhood? We can't define it. Okay. Yeah, there you go. That's the, pro- that's the problem. Like it's only, there's only toxic varieties. And I look, I'm not ar- arguing at all for a domineering masculinity or that sort of thing at all. I'm arguing that the keeper of the garden job is open. Hmm. That's what we're actually created for. I'm trying to create a construction where it's like a box top. You can look at it for any guy, whether you're a professor of accounting or you're a pipe fitter, but you can be a keeper of the garden 
in all the most beautiful ways so that the people around you, just like in a garden where species that wouldn't thrive out in the wild, they get to thrive and bloom because of, because of you're there. Hmm. Like that, that's, that's a, and for me, I play the, I literally, as you may remember, I play the flute. I have a puppet collection. I have an accord. I play the accordion. Accordion, yeah. Yeah. So I had to, you know, tell the publisher when they were talking about the cover <laughs> and they're like, Oh, the men we need, let's do, um, uh, well, oh, have, like, let's have a silhouette of it. I'm like, don't put a mm. silhouette guy against a mountain. <laughs> don't. So yeah, cause that's, it, to me, it's it's got to apply across the board, and it's got to be life-giving if we are going to have a picture for it. So that, especially if you're a younger guy, you have a you have an idea that's not just filled in with nihilism. Like they they're like guys have no idea what we're really what really masculinity is wonderful, mm-hmm. why it's wonderful, and then we come up with all these ridiculous you know cartoonish ideas about it. Um, so, but if we had it, if we had something like this, I feel like it'd be really energizing for people to actually know, Oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. Yeah. Every now and again, I'll see on social media or different places, you know, so like by whatever age a real man should know, yeah. how, know how to, or be able to, and it's a list of things. And I start tracking when I'm like, all right, you know, I'm actually doing pretty good here. <laughs> I can do all these things. And then I get down to the, like, you know, changes oil or something. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, my dad never showed me how to do that. What am I supposed to do? Jared, <laughs> and I can I afford kid- to pay somebody. So <laughs> I kid you not. I am not kidding you. This for real happened. I told my son when he was maybe middle school or early high school, like, I'm going to show you how to change the oil. Hmm. And we drove to Jiffy Lube. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, here's where you pay the guy. They'll, they'll come out and they'll show you the air filter, and you just say no. I don't yeah, that's right. Do that. Don't fall for any of the extra stuff. <laughs> Helping you navigate the world. <laughs> I don't check off any of those boxes. That's right. Yeah. When they say, uh, ter- you know, uh, tire pressure 33, that sound right? Just say yes. <laughs> that's how you do it. Son. I think that's it's okay. like ah, I think that's maybe 32 next. <laughs> that's how you get her done? Yeah, that's right. That's good. Well, so I don't, um, you know, so I have guests on every other week, uh, usually to talk about their books. Sometimes it's just, you know, just an area of expertise or something like that. And uh, a lot of times, obviously, I, I don't have time to read everybody's book. But several months ago, I read your book uh, yeah. in view of, a, of an endorsement, which I did provide. So I, I was happy to endorse the book. So anyone listening, like, you, you ever wonder, like, does Jared really, first of all, I wouldn't have somebody on if I didn't want, you know, want to commend them to you. But no, I don't always have time to read all the books that I talk to somebody about. But this one I have. And not only have I read it, I was happy to endorse it. And what I found really interesting about it, brother, was this is a really tricky book to pull off right now for a couple of reasons. I find it refreshing because your take on biblical manhood, um, biblical masculinity is actually a pretty traditional take. Uh, In some ways, we would say it's a a almost complementarian take just in terms of like men and women are different. They have complementary roles and that sort of thing. And how you define the nature of masculinity, but you do it without all of the cultural baggage. This is why I find it like really refreshing. You're able to say, so you distinguish men from women and you say the masculine mandate is to protect and defend. And you do that without having to bring in all the macho he-man type stuff. So first of all, awesome. Secondly, where do you get that? Where does the masculine mandate Protected a fin for you. Where does that come from? Well, 
Yeah, that's a good question. Let me get back to kind of where you're going there. Yeah. I don't even know where I am on the debates. I don't. Okay. I, I see the debates going on. I don't. I don't even know what I am. Um, <laughs> you just playing with so, your puppets? Is that? <laughs> yeah. You know, what's weird to me is I think if somebody who's like a, a committed feminist could read this book and say, "Yeah, you know what? The world would be better." Hmm. If guys acted like that, because I'm not just saying protect and defend like flex, like right. I'll you know, I'll defend if somebody comes into my home, I'll defend. But like I'm talking about people flourishing because you're there. So your wife flourishes like you're her biggest fan. If she's brilliant or she's incredibly gifted at something like you get out of the way or you just make it so that she can use her gifts to her the full. So that's it's more than just it's there's, there's a cultivation to this keeper of the garden thing. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a creation of beauty in your sphere of influence. That's your garden, whatever your sphere of influence is. So it's really it's really a kingdom theology of understanding the kingdom of God and how beautiful it is and getting to be a, a creator of that and co- cooperating with him on that. So like like I've said to people, if, if men acted this way, if men took this seriously, there would be no need for a Me Too movement. Hmm. Like so. On one hand, people could go, well, you're, you're saying that men maybe have a specific calling and that's, that's controversial or whatever. Well, maybe, I don't know, but wouldn't our neighborhoods and everything be better off if we were like this? We're the people who want the vulnerable to thrive. And so we do whatever we can to that end. So I think it's beautiful. I, I set it up in the book. Where does this come from? It dawned on me the first time when I was in college. I mentioned it in the book. There's this poster back in the late eighties. That every girl at the University of Illinois, I swear, had that in her room. It's the same dude. It's the same photo of the same dude. It's still the biggest selling poster in the history of posters. Okay. It's called L'Enfant. It's a, it's a French photographer. It's a guy who I'm sure he's good looking and all that. But there's, there's a billion pictures of good looking guys, I'm sure. But they all have the same one. He's holding a baby off to the side. It's a profile. And I, I asked the girls at the time, like, what is the deal with this dude? Why is he so hot to everybody? It's like, it's not him. It's the way the baby's looking at him. Like, really? Hmm. It resonates with women so much because you can see that the baby's looking up at him. You can look it up, just L'Enfant poster on and Google or whatever. You'll see it. But the baby's looking up hopefully at him and vulnerably, and they're making eye contact. And it made me think if there, there's something deep that women intuit about men when we're at our best. And that should be some sort of an arrow that points us towards something. Same thing with, you know, what's the what's the sexiest occupation a man could have to women? It's always firefighter. Hmm. So I'm like, what, I mean, deep down, why is that? There's something about the way women react to us when we are sources of security that should point out what we're supposed to be when we're at our best. Conversely, you can have all the trappings of masculinity. And if you make your wife feel insecure, let's say you're, you are totally jacked and then you have a great truck and you got tats and you lift weights and you're amazing. But if you flirt with other women or you make her feel insecure, she'll actually resent your muscles and she will not be attracted to you. Yeah. I was listening to, um, a podcast not too long ago. I might've shared this on another episode. I think I shared it with somebody, but they were interviewing the comedian actor Dax Shepard. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's married to the actress Kristen Bell, who's more famous than he is. But he was talking about 
what sent him finally into some sort of recovery program for addiction and that sort of thing was his wife. So if he felt like somebody was making her uncomfortable or he perceived a threat to her, he would react in a very aggressive anger. Like, I mean, he was beating people up. He would, he would, he would beat people up. And eventually Christian was saying, you're not making me feel more safe. Like number one, you're, you're overreacting to some of these things. Um, right. You know, you're perceiving things that aren't really even happening. But when you do that, it actually makes me feel more afraid. Yeah. And he thought, oh, I'm doing all this in the guise of I'm protecting her. And it's actually making her feel more and more afraid. Right. So this is an interesting thing that I, I took from somebody else's book and I did attribute <clears throat> in my book. But uh, one guy had said, you know, I always I always patted myself on the back because I, I like I would always if an intruder came in the home to attack my wife, I would do whatever it took. And, and like, that's most of us, right? To pat ourselves on the back for that. He said, but then I realized that doesn't happen very often. You know, it does happen is most of the time I'm the intruder mm. with my words or my lack of words or whatever it is. That's not a blessing to my family or my anger issues, my whatever, like I'm the one that has to be defended against. Yeah. So that's when you become, and it, it can be in a passive way too. Like that's Adam's failures. He was, he was toxically passive. He did nothing um, and didn't show up. So that can also make a woman feel less secure too, because you've basically checked out and she doesn't really deep down believe that you'll do whatever it takes to keep this relationship going or make, make things more secure. So there's, there's subtle ways that we do it that I think need to be called out. And that's just a normal life. Like, it's not all about this one big incident when somebody invades your house. <laughs> right. But you tell a story, don't you, in, in the book, if I'm remembering correctly, about rushing out onto the street, actually, to, <laughs> to confront a, a, a threat of some kind? Yeah. Well, this – okay. So this is a good point because, <laughs> again, I'm not that guy. <laughs> so I'm lying in bed. My wife's in bed. It's like 11, 11.30, and there's a big ruckus out out front of our house in the street. And I don't know what it was, like college age kids or high school kids. And they're like wrestling in the street. There's a big group of people. Very weird. And my wife was unsettled. She, she goes over to look, you know, at the blinds and downstairs. I'm like, like, just there, it's, there's just kids. Don't worry about it. I was saying, we'll just turn up the noise machine louder or whatever. Let's just go to bed. Well, she goes to bed. Then she gets up and goes downstairs. And so now I'm lying in bed by myself upstairs and she's doing, she's like, I can't handle this. Hmm. So I'm like, okay, don't just lie here. Get up. So I go downstairs and I, I got dressed or whatever. And I went out the door to just, I don't know, break it up. Or whatever. Well, as I walked out, they started dispersing <laughs> and it may not have been because I walked out. I'm guessing it wasn't actually. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but, the timing of it. And like, so I came back in, I didn't even say anything. Like they were all clearing out. So like, whatever I turned around, walked back in the door. And my wife's like, that is so hot. <laughs> yeah. You made them flee. I said, I didn't even do anything. I laughed. Like I didn't, I got to tell you, I didn't do anything. She's like, yeah, but you were willing to. Mm, the willingness. Yeah. Even the willingness, even the willingness. And uh, for a guy, again, that's not, I'm not Mr. I'll, I'll break this up, but with this is my willingness to, to deal with it. So my wife can be at peace. Mm-hmm. She's enormously attractive. So I'm trying to tell guys too, like 
look, this is good news for those of us who don't look like they should be on men's fit. I kind of do, but like for, for everybody else, it doesn't look like they should be on a men's fitness magazine cover. <laughs> right. Well, I want to talk about that for a second because so you do have there's a few things in in the book you use phrases about like what women find attractive and things like that. That is such a common um I don't know trope or 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 theme. It's actually elevated even more so. It's not the it's not the dominant theme of your book uh, by any stretch. I don't, and I don't yeah. mean to give that impression at all, but you mentioned it a couple of times, but it's such a dominant theme in kind of like the manosphere type circles and that sort of thing, fi- attracting women and what women find attractive. And so much of that is so performative and so puffed up that, that very often I think it actually comes from a male insecurity about certain yes. things. But um, your list, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, some things related to it, about what women find attractive in men. It's somewhat counterintuitive or at least countercultural, right? Like you say you have the di- you know self-diagnostic question, do I make her feel more secure um, as kind of a question uh, to ask ourselves. What kind of redirect – would you want to give to young men who are, you know, about pursuing women that are thinking, I want to find, you know, the right girl. I want to attract the right girl. I want to be attractive to girls. What kind of redirects would you give them, uh, especially looking out into today's culture? Well, I'm trying to get their attention by invoking this sort of discussion uh, because I think it does with younger guys, especially a bit all guys, but Ultimately, I'm saying don't don't become this kind of man because it's attractive to women. Sure. Uh, but but use the fact that they intuit this as evidence that this is who we're supposed to be when we're at our best. And we need you to be this guy. The world does. The world does. Yeah. Because whatever context you're in, nobody else is in that exact context with these people and this job or this this schoolwork, wherever you are like and God has given you some personality, some abilities, some like, and you can use it in the service of this to help other people thrive. And here's how you can do that. So as far as, as far as becoming that guy, I'm like, you should become that guy because not only will women be attracted to you, but when you do get married, she'll stay attracted to you. Like she will, if you're that, like, we know this, we've been married for a while. It's 32 years for me. Like I know this. And when I destabilize things with my words or my lack of caring or something, it's, I am less attractive to this day. Like, so, so yeah, I I don't know. I don't know how to, how to redirect necessarily, except just say, this is, this is how you grow up and um, everyone around you will benefit from that. And don't you want that? I mean, don't really, when you're 60, 70 years old, don't you want to look back and go, okay, I engaged the real world. My adventures weren't purely virtual. My relationships weren't just with fake women, right? You do, that is what you want, right? So we can go from there once, once we've established that. But most guys have ne- are never challenged that way. They never really are, not yeah. in this cult. You, you talk about a few things in the book, including um, some really important things like the toxicity of uh, pornography and different things like that. Um, but you have sort of the proactive encouragement, um, be ambitious about the right things, right? So I think a lot of us would equate a kind of ambition with a masculine mandate, whether biblical or unbiblical, we would see, you know, go-getter, career track, whatever it is, there's a kind of, I'm going somewhere, I'm on a, I'm on a mission. What are the right things? You say, be ambitious about the right things. What are the right things to be ambitious about? Well, I think, I think you should ask God. Um, I literally think you should ask for wisdom because wisdom will tell you what the right things are or 
competing right things? What's more valuable than this other thing? Because that's where we go wrong, right? So I'm saying ambition is good. And that's another thing that women find attractive is ambition. But it's got to be about the right stuff or else you wind up with huge regrets. Mm-hmm. For example, you may be ambitious about your job, but you got little kids in your house. Well, now is little kids season. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can do that other stuff later. And if it means what I'm trying to say too, be ambitious about the right things. Well, but I have these bills like, well, then drive an old car because now is little kid season. And who are you, James Bond? You can't, you can't be in a 97 F-150. Like what? <laughs> this is not the time. Hmm. I think when you talk about the right things, it's, it's basically asking God for wisdom to focus on what's really important in that season of life. Um, one, if you don't mind, I think you'll get this. I'm not sure everybody would. So that's why I'm excited to talk to you about it. But <laughs> I just did some interviews with just some great people and they're just still in shock that so many guys are addicted to pornography. And isn't that awful? And it is. But I'm, I'm kind of like, can we feel sorry for men? Is that OK? Hmm. Because traditionally, you know, this in cultures, you, you know who you are and what you're for. Like you're in a village, you're born, you're going to have to, you're going to have to defend the village with people. You're going to have to work your dad's job. You're going to have to be part of an agrarian community. You're going to be going out with hunting parties to provide food for your family and the other families. Like, you know what your job is. You know, you're needed. You're valuable from the very start. That's the typical human experience. But now you like we're isolated. We've never had this technology before. We're not told what our roles are. Like you're going to fall for stuff. It's just like any addiction. If you don't have something bigger and better that you're able to say yes to. Right. So if, for these guys that are caught up in video games all the time and pornography, and whatnot, can we f- just go, you know what? This is really difficult. We're not, it's not supposed to be this way. I feel for, I feel for younger guys. I feel for us. Like this is tough. Yeah. That, that's, that doesn't make it less evil, but it's like, can, we got to unless you're given something bigger to shoot for, it's tough to say no to those dopamine hits in life. Like, what's it for? Is it they just have nihilism and technology? That's all they got. Yeah, I sometimes think, you know, it was about 20 years or so ago where I, I wrecked my life um, largely because of pornography use. That was before smartphones. And, you know, that was in the days where like you had to go look for it. Even if you got it on your computer, it took a while yep. to get. And I wonder, like, man, you know, if I was going through that in an age where all I, I have this thing in my pocket, I have a doorway yeah. in my pocket to instant stuff, how much more of a mess I would have been probably. This is so weird to have in, in this level of isolation in a culture. Like in a, normally in a village or community or a city or whatever, people are in and out of your house. There's larger families. There's more interconnectedness. You're mm-hmm. out on the street. Um, you're busier. You've got stuff going on. You're, you don't have time. And now we're completely isolated and we're left with this technology. Like this is not, this is guys have never had to put, do this before. This is hard. Yeah. So I, I just would like some compassion from men too on that, especially younger guys. Look, I get it, man. It's, it's difficult, but let's, let's go from there and offer something bigger and better. Yeah. You know, and when you look at some of the social data, I mean, I don't have the stats at hand, but you know, some of the, the stats and some of the research about about boy like you know young boys in terms of coming up through grade school for instance right and how they're treated versus so just they're really lagging behind and i think that even 
is is being shown now. Like you look at you know college settings, how like the you know greater percentage, higher and higher percentage of females in college and um, and that sort of thing. And not that college is the end all be all, but it, it's showing a, a track record of boys in some ways being left behind, kind of, and not being not prioritized, but at least um, absolutely you know, yeah, yeah, taken seriously. I think a lot of this goes back to, well, controversially, and it's just guessing, but I think pornography is a big part of that. Hmm. A very big part of it. Uh, it's like this trap has been laid for these guys, 15, 16. You can imagine me at 15, 16 years old having phones and stuff. Like, what in the world? And then you wind up being, it affects your personality. You're more sullen. Guys lose their ambition to do things um, because they're getting this these dopamine hits and on Reddit, there's a, there's an entire giving all that up thread. It's not even from a Christian standpoint, mm-hmm. but people, I'm done with this. And then their personality changes. They document their personality changes within the first month. Like they're more outgoing. They've got more energy for other things. They've got, it's just really interesting to me. So uh, yeah. um, I want to ask you a couple, you know, get you on a couple of topics they're not really related to the book. Is that okay? Sure. <laughs> well, the Is first it? one, maybe, I don't know. Maybe you could talk about it. I don't think this is something that you're, you've been very forthright about, something that you've talked about. Asperger syndrome, right? Or, or Asperger's, living with Asperger's. How do you do, this is something I'm just fascinated by, and I think some of our listeners would be as well. So relationships, as somebody with Asperger's, how do you sort through that? How do you even pick up on some of these you know, caring and that sort of thing. What are the, the challenges you face and how do you overcome those? It's really, it's really big. Um, I don't know that I've, 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 I don't know that I am overcoming them. Okay. And I, I think relationships are a challenge for everybody to some extent. That's true. I do feel like I landed in a culture that I don't understand okay. and that's a constant, but you know this from like if you ever interview comedians or writers, that's a that's an advantage in some ways because everything's absurd, so everything's kind of funny. <laughs> um, and so if you're doing observational humor or whatever, that's having Aspergers can be a big help. <laughs> okay. So I, I recognize that I and I'm not great at relationships to this day. I can get lonely. I deal with that. What's the major challenge, Brent? Like, what? Do, what's the hurdle that you just feel like that's always there? The obstacle. To this, to this day, I don't understand what people. I, I just come across too strong, and I don't mean to. I say things too bluntly. I don't mean to. And I'm getting better at that. But I, I see relationships. People have friendships and stuff that are enduring, and they don't seem like they're that much work. But for me, it's exhausting. Hmm. So I'd say that's the biggest thing: is the energy that it takes. And I also think I pine for just one good friend. I know that can happen whether you have Asperger's or not. Like, but I do think it's pronounced with me. I just, I just want one really great friend and I have that in my wife, but in life it's, that's tough to find again. You know what I mean? But from a guy. So do you find that, um, more awareness? And I know a lot of it is probably more, People have caricatures and stereotypes because they don't quite understand, you know, neurological spectrum and or, or different things like that. But in general, the awareness that these things exist, has it helped at all? Like I sometimes totally. think so. I'll tell you, like if I'm scrolling social media, I think I've shared this before uh, online. 
and and someone's just interacting in a like it's just off <laughs> and I could be really offended or I could be really gosh here's a troll I'm going to block but a lot of times I I'll, I'll kind of go through their feed and I think I wonder if they're just I don't know if the term is like neuroatypical or sometimes I like I don't maybe they don't know that they're doing that and they're just they're just being themselves and they actually don't even you know they're not trying to do anything they're just speaking right but it comes across you know I think it does help and that's a really yeah. sweet that's a really sweet I think more pastors should think that way especially because there's folks in their congregation sometimes if we just would go if we had a category for neuroatypical we might go oh I don't need to be all upset about that person you know you know, to this day, one of the kindest things anybody has ever said about me behind my back, <laughs> it's not, it doesn't even sound like a compliment, but it was at work and my boss apparently had said something to a coworker, a lady's coworker on a show. And he's like, man, what's Brant's deal today? And she told him, that's just Brant. Yeah. And that's to this day, I've told her, it's been 20 years. I'm like, that is one of the most freeing things is just to just be like. I know he's a little odd, but with that oddness comes a lot of good stuff too. Yeah, that's great. And so not being able to relax and just say, that's just Brent or, Hey, maybe this guy, this guy has some stuff to offer. He comes across this way. It's such a freeing thing. And for a pastoral heart to have that for the oddballs in your group that actually have a lot to offer just because they don't fit in smoothly. Right. Like, uh, that's that's a freeing thing for those people. That would attract, honestly, a lot of people to a, a gathering where they felt that way. Yeah. Now, so n- not to turn uh, too sharp <laughs> a diversion here, but I want to ask you about Cure. I want to give you opportunity to talk Good. about Cure because I know you're an advocate for them um, and do a lot of work with them. Tell us a little bit about Cure um, International. Okay. People need to know about this. Yeah. Like in my opinion, this is my opinion, but this is the most Jesus-shaped ministry I've ever seen in my life. It's for people around the world are born with disabilities, or, or they break bones, or something. They can't get it fixed because they don't have access. They they would be fixed instantly in the U.S. and instead they don't walk the rest of their lives, and it could be fixed. So there was an orthopedic surgeon and his wife, um, both brilliant people, were like, "Wait, we're we're Jesus followers. Let's fix it." There's millions of, of children. So these are pediatric neurosurgical and orthopedic surgical hospitals. And we just, we've done 300,000 surgeries. We tell everybody who comes through the door, you're not cursed. Cause they all think they're cursed by the gods or by God. And that mom must have done something immoral. And that's why the child has this problem. Always they come in with guilt and shame. And we're able to tell them about the, about Jesus. So we've had hundreds of thousands of people become believers in these hospitals. So it's it's healing and proclaiming the kingdom of God, both and. And these people go back to their villages where they're told that they were cursed and they go back walking upright. And people are like, who did this? And they're able to say, well, there's these Jesus people. It's a miracle. That's awesome. It is. It's a sweet. So I go in these surgery, like I was in the OR like two weeks ago in Zambia and you, they pray over every kid. Sometimes they're singing worship music as they're finishing up a neurosurgery or something. Like literally these, these operating rooms are the best worship services I've ever been in my life because you're healing. And this like, this is advanced trailer of heaven here. This is <laughs> a healed. Like, so I think that's why Jesus healed 
you know, it's such a big part of his ministry. It's like it shows what the kingdom of God looks like in its fullness. Like, hmm. so yeah, I'm a big fan of it. Um, and more people need to know about it. So that's, that's my role. That's how I get to play is try to get the word out. Yeah. So if somebody wanted to know more about or how they could help, where, where would they go? Cure.org. Cure.org. Yes. And you want to see, once you see it, you'll be like, why have I not heard about this before? And I actually asked them that when I started and they're like, well, we're doctors. We're kind of busy. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's what you're here for, Brant. <laughs> yeah. That's what like, well, now I have a role. <laughs> So that's, that's amazing. Yeah. We've been talking with Brant Hansen. He's the author of the new book, The Men We Need. I do, I do endorse this book. Actually, I'm going to read my endorsement. Here it is. Brant Hansen has done it again, this time with a funny, punchy book on manhood, full of hard-won wisdom and simple biblical truths applied across the spectrum of the masculine experience. The Men We Need is the book we need for, yeah. our, for our confused cultural moment. You like that? The book we need. <laughs> It's great. No, I really did enjoy it. I, I did commit it. Such relish. Like, yeah. did you see little Bomo there? I like, like it. <laughs> if you're interested in the book, and I hope that you are, uh, it's available wherever good books are sold from Baker Books, The Men We Need. Make sure you check it out. As always, dear listener, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church. 